Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, podcast listeners of all ages and persuasions. Welcome to episode 53 of the Jolly Thoughts Podcast. Listen, I'm joining you today from my basement at home. And so at any point in time, you could hear a dog bark, you could hear a chair creak, you could hear a child express themselves fully because uh, that's summertime and that's where we're at and that's part of the reason that uh, you haven't seen a whole lot of podcasts kind of rolling through the uh, the channel through the shoot over the last month or so is because uh, summertime for me is pretty chock full uh, it's it's restful it's wonderful but it's also full of camping full of traveling uh, and this summer it's full of a bunch of other things uh, so getting ready for fall at uh, at Kingswood University where I'm kind of taking over some of their worship arts program, uh, as well as uh, I've been doing some traveling with the Worship Leader Research Program. So I was last week, uh, I guess, when was it? Sometime in July. I was in Montreal for the annual hymn conference that they have, and I was able to present uh, on kind of the first phase and second phase of our findings. Uh, And that's actually, there's a YouTube uh, version of that that's going to be attached uh, in the show notes here if you're like super geeky and want to check that out. Um... But yeah, that was a pretty amazing time, frankly. I was able to meet uh, our good friend Adam Perez in the flesh for the first time and uh, and also meet a whole bunch of other really uh, great thinkers in the space kind of surrounding uh, not exclusively contemporary Christian uh, praise and worship, uh, but Christian praise and worship uh, kind of in general through through congregational song. That's really what they focus on. It's called the Hymn Society, but they obviously extend beyond what maybe you might think of in terms of hymns. I was able to meet uh, Lester Ruth, who is somebody whose books uh, have had a huge impact on research that not only our team has done, but really most people who are doing research on on modern uh, praise and worship stuff. And so that was a, a big honor. Uh, it was also just a crazy impact time. And then also, I still am, uh, believe it or not, full-time uh, and uh, very happy to be a full-time uh worship leader and pastor at the church that I serve in Moncton, New Brunswick, at Moncton Wesleyan Church. And so with all that, there's a lot going on. One of the things I was pleased to be able to do this summer is uh, get on the roster for preaching, and I preached a message as part of a a summer series at our church called Give Me a Break. And uh, it's really taking a look at life, uh, the lives of certain people from primarily the Old Testament and uh, kind of finding out where there was a breaking point for them. Uh, where they really kind of needed to cry out to God and ask for ask for some help. And so I was tasked with, and I would say blessed with, the opportunity to take a look at the life of Jonah. And uh, so that's actually what is attached to this podcast primarily. It's a, a, a sermon that I gave uh, and on July, I think it was 16th. Um, so there's a video version of it that's, that's attached if you're more of a watcher than a listener when it comes to that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and also just kind of, this is just a midsummer kind of a check-in from me. I uh, hope everything's going well in your world, and um, I'm looking forward to getting some more episodes of the podcast uh, out, if not late summer, you know, early fall. There's some things in the shoot for sure, but that's a great opportunity to reach out and let me know who you'd like to hear. Without any further ado, uh, here we go, I guess myself, uh, speaking on the Book of Jonah. Hi, church. Can we do something a little bit unusual today? Is it okay if we take a bit of a twist and a bit of a turn? Uh, This is something that I've never done, and it's not something that we normally do. Uh, We're going to read, like, most of the book of Jonah, like most of the whole book, whole book of the Bible today. People, now, now Jonah is a 
It's a teeny-weeny book. It's not a very large one. And actually, part of it, I, I kind of cheated the system a little bit, and I had Charlene lead you in part of it earlier, so we'll be able to excise that from our reading together. Uh, but there's a reason why I'd like to be able to do this. One, as I mentioned, super short. Two, extremely interesting. Uh, and, and three, you need the full scope of this story for the, the kind of the one key truth that I'm hoping will kind of rise to the top for it to make sense. And rather than me try to summarize it, I figured maybe we'll just read it together. So I was not really looking for your approval. It's what we're going to do. But if you're on board, maybe you could clap. Is that good? Okay, good. Okay, good. All right. Okay, so it'll be on screen here uh, for the most part behind me. Uh, or if you're watching online, it'll be kind of right in front of you. Uh, however, if you'd like to read along, I'm reading from the New English Translation, the NET. And if you're like me, uh, though I always encourage you to go to the Word, you might, it might even be better for you to just kind of close your eyes and listen. You know, everyone's got their own kind of learning style, but I promise you, you can check my work afterwards if you want. So, starting with Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord's message came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go immediately to Nineveh, that large capital city, and announce judgment against its people because their wickedness has come to my attention. Instead, Jonah immediately headed off to Tarshish to escape from the commission of the Lord. He traveled to Joppa and found a merchant ship that was heading to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, he went aboard it to go with them to Tarshish, far away from the Lord, as though that were possible. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind on the sea. Such a violent tempest arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break up. The sailors were so afraid that each cried out to his own God, and they flung the ship's cargo overboard to make the ship lighter. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold below deck, had lain down, and was sound asleep. The ship's captain approached him and said, What are you doing asleep? Get up! Cry out to your God! Perhaps your God might take notice of us so that we, I don't know, might not die. The sailors said to one another, come on, let's cast lots to find out whose fault it is that this disaster has overtaken us. So they cast lots, and Jonah, surprise, surprise, was singled out. They said to him, tell us, whose fault is it that this disaster has overtaken us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Who are your people? And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I just want to pause briefly here at verse 9. Um, if you, this might be like super redundant for some of you, but I think it's particularly important in this story and in the context that we're reading here. When you see LORD in all caps, so sometimes it doesn't show up here in the way that it's on screen, but if you're looking in your Bible, possibly you'll see LORD, L-O-R-D, but they're all caps. It's not just because they're yelling the word like, LORD! It's not because they're doing that. It's a way of translating the Hebrew word that's kind of like Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. It's not those letters, but that's the gist. The point is, is that they would use Lord or Adonai in various contexts, like they talk to the king that way, they talk to important people that way, but when they're translating the word Yahweh, which is like the proper name, so like, my name is Mark, um, theoretically in, in practice, the God that... that Jonah serves, his name is Yahweh, but what you're going to see is Lord when you look at the text. It's important to remember that as you go along. This is not just some God, this is this God. So picking up at verse 10, 
Hearing this, the sailors, the men, they became even more afraid and said to him, what have you done? The men said this because they knew that he was trying to escape from the Lord because he had previously told them so. Because the storm was growing worse and worse, they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? And he said to them, but you got to pick me up and throw me into the sea so that the sea will calm down for you because I know it's my fault that you're in this severe storm. Instead, they tried to row back to land, but they were not able to do so because the storm kept getting worse and worse. And these are pagan sailors who were trying to avoid throwing him into the sea. Verse 14, so they cried out to the Lord, oh, please, Lord, don't let us die on account of this man. Don't hold us guilty of shedding innocent blood. After all, you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and then the sea stopped raging. The men feared the Lord greatly. The men feared the Lord greatly and earnestly vowed to offer lavish sacrifices to the Lord. And then depending upon the version of the Bible you're looking at, this is either the last verse of chapter 1 or the first verse of chapter 2. And this is, the, this is the part that you all know the story for. If you know the story of Jonah, it's for this. This is why I loved it growing up. The Lord sent a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and for three nights, which is some wild and wacky stuff. And that's where we picked up earlier when Charlene was reading the, the, what essentially is like a psalm, right? It's like a prayer that Jonah gives to God from the, the belly of the beast, but it's not as though he's talking about the fish very much. It's, he's usually kind of describing what sounds like death, right? He spends three days in the, in the grave, as it were, in Sheol, uh, as it says there a few times. If you want to check that out, you can. So we pick up again at the beginning of Jonah chapter 3. It doesn't have this on screen, but spoiler alert, the fish vomits Jonah out onto dry land. So picking up at verse 1, of Jonah chapter 3, the Lord's message came to Jonah a second time. Go immediately to Nineveh, that large city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah, this time, went immediately to Nineveh in keeping with the Lord's message. Now, Nineveh was an enormous city. It required how many days? It required three days to walk through it. Interesting. Three days to walk through it. Verse 4, Jonah began to enter the city by going one day's walk, announcing, at the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And then this incredibly surprising verse, chapter 3, verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed in God. They declared a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, it started at the bottom and worked its way to the top. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, he took off his royal robe, he put on sackcloth, and he sat on ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, no human or animal, cattle or sheep is to taste anything. They must not eat, they must not drink water. Every person and animal must put on sackcloth and must cry earnestly to God, and everyone must turn from their evil way of living and from the violence that they do. Who knows? Perhaps God might be willing to change his mind and relent 
and turn from its fierce anger so that we might not die. And when God saw their actions, not just the good inside their hearts, but their actions, that they turned from their evil way of living, God relented concerning the judgment he had threatened them with, and he did not destroy them. Now, in a little bit, we're going to read Jonah chapter 4, but we're going to take a little bit of time here just to kind of build the case for what's going on. Now, who were the Ninevites? Who were the Ninevites? So, Nineveh was the capital city, it says capital a few times in the text, of the Assyrian Empire. And if you don't know who the Assyrians were, these are not the kind of people that you want to invite over for dinner, okay? They were nasty. These are some brutal people. Uh, So, Assyria was the empire that was kind of up and to the right, to the northeast of where uh, Israel and Judah were at this time, part of what they call the the Fertile Crescent. And they were pretty well known as being not super friendly people. Uh, They were sort of like the proto-empire. So when you think of empires later on in the Bible, we think of the Roman Empire. Well, these guys were maybe maybe the originators of some of the violence and some of the stuff that they did. So actually, a few years ago, uh, in 2018, there was a... um, a retrospective, if you will. There was like an art exhibit that happened in the London Museum, the British Museum in London, I should say. And uh, what they did is they found a bunch of different Assyrian artworks, and they brought them there, and they put them on display. Uh, And this is not like propaganda against Assyria. This is not the kind of stuff that people were using to say, these guys are terrible. This was their own self-published work, as it were, curated. It's like the Instagram reel of what Assyria would have been like at this point in time. They wanted you to know. And uh, so this is actually in the, the Guardian, which is a, a British newspaper, which is not a terribly like, right-wing, it's actually kind of a left-wing newspaper, frankly. Uh, somebody by the name of Jonathan Jones, in the November 6th, 2018 edition of The Guardian, he wrote this about his time walking around and taking in the sights. He said, you have to hand it to these ancient Assyrians. They were honest. Their artistic propaganda relishes every detail of torture, of massacre, battlefield executions, and human displacement that made Assyria the dominant power of the Middle East from about 900 BC to 612 BC. Assyrian art contains some of the most appalling images ever created. In one scene, tongues are being ripped out from the mouths of prisoners. That will mute their screams when, in the next stage of their torture, they are flayed alive. In another relief, a surrendering general is about to be beheaded, and in a third, prisoners have to grind their father's bones before being executed in the streets of Nineveh. And uh, if there's any sensitive listeners in the room, I probably already should have given you that warning, uh, but we're actually going to show you a few of the, uh, the artworks right now. Don't worry, it's pretty low resolution, so it's not as though you can see it. This is stuff that's carved on sandstone, but we'll take a look at some of these images. Um, the first one here is... Uh, Yeah, so this is the one where they're cutting out the tongues of their enemies. Fun. Next one here is when we have them being impaled. And then we've got one where they're doing the flaying alive that was described. And then last but not least, this is supposed to be the one where they're grinding the bones of their fathers uh, before they themselves are set to be executed. So like I said not people that you would describe as being overly friendly, the Ninevites. Which I think leads pretty naturally to this question, which I would like us to consider this morning. Why 
did Jonah not want to preach to the Ninevites? Oh, you think you know. That's cute. That's going to be good. Okay, so, I mean, so, so here's the first one. Were, was he afraid of the Ninevites? Now, I've seen my fair share of kids' stories that have used this as the angle. Understandably, nobody here wants to have this removed and then this removed and all the things removed systematically. That's no fun. Was he afraid of the Ninevites? I mean, quite possibly he was. But I would submit that that's not necessarily the only answer for why he didn't want to go. Option two, was he rebellious? Was he like, I don't know, myself as a teenager or myself as a 42-year-old, where I'm going to do something and then somebody tells me that I should do it and immediately I go, I don't want to do that. Uh, you know, you, I was going to clean my room until you told me to clean my room, that kind of thing. Is this, the, is this the explanation for why Jonah, he was just like, no, I don't want to do it because you said so. I mean, he does seem to be a little bit rebellious. Option number three, worth considering, is he just ignorant? I wrote down the word ignorant. I kind of, what I mean is, I guess, does he maybe just not know the will of God very well? As a prophet, like one of your uh, calling cards, one of the things that makes you a prophet is that you can hear and discern the voice of God kind of clearly and directly. Is it possible that Jonah was just I don't know, a bad prophet. Was he afraid? Was he rebellious? Was he maybe ignorant? Well, here's when we get the opportunity to kind of take a look at the last little section of the story, starting at Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And it says, this displeased Jonah terribly. What's the this? The this is the fact that God said, okay, I'll let you off the hook. This displeased Jonah terribly, and he became very angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, oh, oh Lord, this is just what I thought would happen when I was in my own country. This is what I tried to prevent by attempting to escape to Tarshish, because I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and one who relents concerning threatened judgment. So now, Lord, go ahead and kill me instead, because I would rather die than live. And the Lord said, are you really so very angry? So, was he afraid? Quite possibly. Was he rebellious? Quite certainly. Was he ignorant? It seems as though Jonah knew quite well the heart of God and how this whole thing could go. He knew that if he preached the message that God told him to preach, that this was a very possible, if not likely, outcome. But here's the question. What was the message that Jonah was told to preach? To walk through the streets and say, God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. He wants what's best for you. Is this what he preached? We have a couple different, very short sections of the book of Jonah that tell us, give us a window into what likely was preached. And I think it's fun because it's, it's Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, and Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. So it's like 1, 2, 3, 4, kind of combo hits. Uh, so here's what we have. We have, starting at Jonah 1, 2, it says, Go immediately to Nineveh, that large capital city, and announce what? Announce judgment. 
against its people because their wickedness has come to my attention. And then Jonah 3 verse 4 says, Jonah began to enter the city by going one day's walk and announcing, at the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be blessed, will be, you know, given lollipops, overthrown, Nineveh will be overthrown, Throw. So this is the message that Jonah likely preached, one of judgment, one of condemnation, one of God's displeasure. Isn't that interesting? I think that's interesting. And so I'm going to take a bit of a sidetrack here. This won't be long, but I think it's important. I think it's a valuable thing for us as a church, us as Christians, to, to get a, an opportunity to see. And shout out to my folks who are walking through the Bible with uh, some of us on this kind of one-year plan. We have been seeing all kinds of Old Testament passages hang in there. We're about a month or so away from the New Testament, I promise. But we're moving through, and there's so many different prophets that are preaching so much bad news and condemnation, and there's it, not a whole lot of carrot at the end of the stick. It's just a whole lot of stick for most of these people. But all along the way, we end up facing what is really a mismatch with how this has often been taught to us as Christians. We have often been taught this, and maybe you've come across this on like blog posts, maybe in conversations, maybe in university classrooms, that the God of the Old Testament is this like super angry, super violent, super legalistic, not compassionate, not gracious guy. And then there's Jesus who's all like, hugs, it's all good. So Old Testament bad, New Testament good. But this is not how even the Jewish people conceived of or understood the God that was described in their ancient texts. And so in Exodus 34, we come across what's often maybe described as like the paradigmatic approach of describing who God is. Really, really briefly, uh, Pat spoke, it was either one week or two weeks ago, about Moses. We know about Moses. Moses was a wild guy. Moses saw God face to face. Moses goes up the mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments, he comes down the mountain, he sees people having an orgy, he gets mad, he breaks the tablets, he goes back up the mountain, he negotiates with God and says, don't destroy them all, uh, and God says, okay, but I'm not going to go with you anymore, and then Moses says, we won't go if you don't go with us, and then God says, okay, and then he gets another set of the tablets, and Moses, who's already been having this, this back and forth, this deep conversation with God, says, could you show me your glory? Could you let me see you, like, as you really are? Could you help me understand you a little bit better? And God says, I can't, I can't show you my glory or you'll die, but I can hide you in this rock and I can kind of pass by you so that you can get a glimpse. And then we have this really weird passage, as if that wasn't weird enough. Exodus 34, uh, verses 5 to seven. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud. Remember, this is the Lord. This is Yahweh. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the Lord by name. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious 
God, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, responding to the transgression of fathers by dealing with children and children's children to the third and even the fourth generation. And if you're anything like me, you grew up hearing that last part. And frankly, with my Western worldview and my individualist framing, I thought, well, that's not very fair. Why should, I mean, why should the, you know, not even the children, but the, the grandchildren or maybe even the great-grandchildren, why should they have to suffer for the sins of the, the parents? And I think that's worth wrestling with. But if you're ever looking for a, a bit of a deeper dive in this than I'm able to give today, I was a scholar by the name of Matt Lynch who released a work called Flood and Fury. And in this, he points out and he does the math. And he says, third or fourth generation of those who sinned but thousands of generations to those who followed after him. The math stacks up pretty heavily on this side. If you had a balancing scale and try to say, where will you fall? Will you fall on the balance of mercy or on the balance of judgment? It seems as though God, who is always just and always true and always righteous, it seems as though this God is willing It seems as though he may even be wired to balance on the side of mercy and grace. That's why, as Jonah walked through the streets and said, I'm just going to say what God said, in 40 days y'all are going to burn, he knew somehow that God would take these people back if they would just repent. That was always a possibility. Now, we gave a little bit of context for Jonah, excuse me, we gave a little bit of context for the Ninevites, but we haven't really talked too much about where this Jonah guy comes from. And the truth is, there's not a whole lot of context for where Jonah comes from. He does show up in the New Testament, which we'll get to, but he shows up in the Old Testament pretty sparsely. He is mentioned in 2 Kings uh, chapter uh, 14, verse 25. He shows up during the reign of Jeroboam II in the nation of Israel. So Jeroboam reigned somewhere between 780 to 750 BCE, give or take. And, um, but there's no way to know, A, how old Jonah was during that reign, and B, exactly when he's referenced in that reign. So who knows? He could have been a 19-year-old in 1750. He could have been a 60-year-old in 780. It's hard to say. But he shows up in there somewhere in that context. What we do know is that somewhere between 720, 722 BCE, Israel falls. It is decimated to an invading empire. Anyone care to guess who that empire might be? It's the Assyrians. That's correct. Yes, these lovely people from Nineveh, the flayers, the tongue pluckers, they come down and they do just absolutely terrifying and atrocious things to the people of Israel. So, as I see it, we have, again, the number three shows up a lot today. We have three options. Either Jonah just knew who these horrendous people were. Again, they weren't very shy about letting people know the kinds of things that they did to their enemies. They were very public about it. So either Jonah simply had heard of the Assyrians and knew the terrible, no good, very bad things that they would do to people. Or, this is possible, remember Jonah's a prophet. So even if he lived 
before this time, it's conceivable that by the direct revelation of the Holy Spirit or just by his ability to kind of read the cultural moment in which he was placed, he could say, those are the people that are going to do in my own kingdom and my own people. Or, as I mentioned, because we don't really know how old he was and we don't really know where he lived, there's not enough details. It's at least possible that Jonah was one of the people who survived the sack of Samaria, the sack of Israel, and that he survived even though he knows dozens of himself personally, possibly hundreds, if not thousands of other people who did not survive, who ended up having the same kind of things happen to them as we saw depicted on those terrible, terrible reliefs. So it's one of those three things. So with all that being said, I want to ask one more time, why did Jonah not want to preach to the people of Nineveh? Because Jonah did not want the people of Nineveh to receive grace. Jonah did not want the people of Nineveh to be forgiven. Jonah received the word from God and he said, those, those people, you want me to go and preach to those people. You want me to be an instrument of grace to, to those people? The ones who did that, the ones who were going to keep doing that, you want me? Not a, you got to give me a break. Not a chance. I would rather die. I would rather die than be your mouthpiece to people like that. And this, even though it took us a little while to get there, this is where I want us to kind of land as we consider going forward. Do you find yourself in need of a break today? Do you find yourself in need of mercy and of grace? Do you need a break? If you need a break today, maybe you need to be the one to give a break. If you need a break, maybe you need to be the one to give a break. As I mentioned, this is not exactly an Old Testament concept. It's not karma either. It's littered all over the New Testament. These scriptures are not on screen, but I just want to blow through a number of them really quickly. So Luke chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus says, treat others in the same way that you would want them to treat you. We know that as the golden rule. Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, do not be deceived. God will not be made a fool for a person will reap what he sows. In other words, if you reap judgment, if you sow judgment, you will reap judgment. If you sow lack of mercy, that's also what you're going to reap. Matthew 7, 2, Jesus says, by the standard you judge, you will be judged. And the measure that you use will be the measure that you receive. Again, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not Forgive others, your Father will not forgive you your sins. Or what about this from the Lord's Prayer? The way that Jesus taught us to pray, Luke eleven four, forgive us our sins, Father, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And I won't even take the time to read through Matthew 18's The Parable of the Unmerciful Servant, but just the story of this man who's received an absolutely astronomical gift and is unwilling to parse out even a little bit to other people. Do you need to get a break? Maybe it's because 
you need to give a break. I think of it like water. I think that grace, like water, is meant to move. Grace is meant to move. My family uh, knows that if I'm anywhere near a body of water and I have anything that even approximates swim shorts, I'm going to get into that body of water, whether it's freezing cold, whether it's boiling hot, uh, if it's the ocean, if it's a river, I want in. The one exception would be like a still, kind of a stagnant, small kind of pond. Those are pretty nasty. Nasty things get into ponds, right? Because water, like grace, is meant to move. You know, whether it's the the rolling tides of the ocean that churn up huge volumes of water, whether it's a river or stream that has a a clear beginning and you can see it flowing through, or even, you know, beautiful lakes, beautiful ponds, it might look like they're they're still, but they they have tributaries. They have things that are feeding into it and they have places where it goes out. But if it stops, the water, the water turns and it becomes, it becomes a nasty place to be. We're going to read the last little bit of Jonah now. Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 to 11. Starting at verse 5, Jonah left the city. He sat down east of it. He made a shelter for himself there and sat down under it in the shade to see what would happen to the city. He wanted to see what was going to happen to the city. The Lord God appointed a little plant and caused it to grow up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to rescue him from his misery. And now Jonah was very delighted about the little plant. So God sent a worm at dawn the next day and it attacked the little plant so that it dried up. And when the sun began to shine, God sent a hot east wind so the sun beat down on Jonah's head and he grew faint. So he despaired of life and in his ever so dramatic way. He said, oh, I would rather die than live. And God said to Jonah, are you really so very angry about the little plant? And he said, I am as angry as I could possibly be. And the Lord said, you were upset about this little plant, something for which you did not work, nor did you do anything to make it grow. It grew up overnight and died the next day. Should I not be more concerned about Nineveh, this enormous city? There are more than 120,000 people in it who do not know right from wrong. Sometimes in translations, they will say their their right hand from their left. They don't know which way is up, as well as many animals. God leaves us hanging at the end of that. That's the period at the end of that book. He leaves us hanging with a question. Should I not be concerned about the people of Nineveh? Should we not be concerned about the people of Nineveh? As I mentioned earlier, Jonah gets mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. Jesus himself refers to him. I don't believe that he says this directly, but I, I, I can't help but think that when we get to the story of the prodigal son, we see a parable that really helpfully illustrates this particular truth from, from the book of Jonah. In fact, when Uche was preaching on uh, the prodigal son just last month, this, this sprang to mind, right? You've got the older brother who's upset when the younger brother comes home and says, you know, why should this guy receive grace? Why should this guy receive mercy? 
And if you're anything like me, I know that there's different, we've got different people in the room. We have people who, uh, you know, have been dealing with and struggling with the Bible for, for decades. We've got people who are really brand new at it. We have some people who haven't cracked the cover, but we're glad that you're here and that you're willing to at least continue on in conversation and fellowship with us. But if you're anything like me, you'll often end up identifying with the older brother in that story. And if you're anything like me, you might be identifying with Jonah in this story. You might be thinking, you want me to extend grace to those people, to the people who, who hurt me, to the people who hurt the ones that I love? You want me to overlook all of that and to be an agent of mercy and grace, a vehicle of your love to them? But here's the, here's the part that I'm hoping if we've tracked along the whole time, here's the part that I'm hoping will kind of come home to roost because it hit me where I live as I was reading through this. Some of us are Jonah. Some of us are Jonah in this story. But all of us are Nineveh in this story. Some of us know the heart of God and have to wrestle through it and how we're going to choose to live. But all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. All of us have made mistakes. And each and every one of us needs mercy and grace. We need it from God, and we need it from others. So here's the question that I want you to ask as we land this morning. Who are you in this story? As I've been reading and as you've been thinking and closing your eyes and picturing all the things with the boats and the throwing of the cargo and the flaying, which one are you? We can occupy different places at different times, but tonight, this morning, right now in this place, who are you in the story?